So in the talk this evening, I'd, I'd like to reflect on what it looks like, what it means to practice with the inner critic, to, in a way, unpack this judgmental mind. And Siddhartha sat under the Bodhi tree. He encountered Mara, the personification of delusion. And he was assailed by Mara's arrows in the form of restlessness and aversion and craving and doubt. And in reality, Siddhartha was just meeting his own mind and heart. And everything the mind and heart can do to keep us mired and entangled in confusion and fear and limitation. And Siddhartha saw so clearly that it was only when he allowed these forces to intimidate him that they held the power to deny the freedom that he longed for. And when he stopped being intimidated and looked Mara in the eye, when he stopped fleeing, and said to Mara, I know you. It was the beginning of being unimprisoned, the beginning of freedom and truth. Now this story of Siddhartha's meeting with Mara, I think, holds the essence of the teaching, in a way, the essence of mindfulness. That everything we regard as a problem and an obstacle remains a problem and an obstacle only as long as we are intimidated. And that without that fear, then the obstacles, the problems that we encounter in our lives and practice, these are in truth the classroom of our awakening. It's where we learn about patience and compassion and balance, and trust, and freedom. We don't learn these lessons I might mention in the idyllic moments of our lives. Hanging out on the beach in the Caribbean, saying, I think I'll learn about equanimity here, or in a, learn something about, you know, calm. This is not where it happens. It happens in the mud. Now, this story of Siddhartha meeting Mara, it's a story many of you, of course, will have heard many, many times. Now, you notice the one outstanding visitor or obstacle that is never mentioned in this story is the judgmental mind or the inner critic. The ongoing song of self-blame and shame and belittlement and contempt that shadows, actually, the lives and hearts of so many people like a plague upon their lives, a virus in their hearts. And so many of you speak to me about this judgmental mind that accompanies you through your day, condemning, fault-finding, comparing, such a familiar presence that it's even hard to imagine a life that could be free of this presence. It's so familiar, this inner critic, for many, that it actually feels to be a very kind of 
central, integral part of their their being, of, of who they are. Now, for some of you, this topic may be completely irrelevant. So, you know, please, those of you who are exempt, please feel free to have a nap, you know. <laughs> but it may apply, actually, to some of you. And something, this critical mind that causes so much pain, it actually can't be exempt from our practice. Because we see that the inner critic, the judgmental mind, in a way it's only the tip of the iceberg of self-hatred. And, you know, there's many, many manifestations of that kind of inner mistrust, self-hatred, self-loathing, you know, if you think of the range of it and the plague of it in our culture in terms of those who self-harm, the obsessions, the compulsions, the addictions, it is all part, in my understanding, of the same package. It has the same roots. Much of our past of being present is, of course, about being present with our body, with our feelings, with our mind, our breath, with sitting and with walking. But in fact, if the inner critic, if the inner judge is not attended to in the light of awareness, it will in truth color and distort every single thing that we do in the practice, just as it colors and distorts most things that we do in our life. Now, before I really want to look at unpacking the judgmental mind, I'd like to revisit something Narayan also spoke about yesterday evening, about this very, very important distinction between the inner critic and what in this tradition is called wise discernment or discriminating wisdom. Because it's so important to acknowledge that it's discriminating wisdom that got us here. It's discriminating wisdom that gets us out of bed in the morning instead of putting the pillow over our heads and sleeping for another two hours. It's discriminating wisdom that moves us to reach out to another in pain, to end suffering and harm. It's discriminating wisdom that brings us to sit and walk rather than hanging out in the sensory delights of downtown Barry. It's discriminating wisdom that keeps us showing up, even in the moments when everything seems impossible. And discriminating wisdom is, of course, the source of every wise act and word and choice we make in our lives. It's the source of every step that we take that leads to the end of suffering. And discriminating wisdom is drawing on something. It's drawing on ethics, it's drawing on the precepts, it's drawing on compassion. And discriminating wisdom is really teaching us to to find the Buddha within ourselves and to find the Buddha in all beings. Now judgment, of course, the way that we tend to use the word judgment is something entirely different. Now, we might still get out of bed in the morning. We might still sit and walk. We might even still show up. But every step of the way, we'll be berating ourselves. 
for being stupid or unworthy or inadequate or a schmuck and everything we do is a mistake and not good enough. And what we really see is that the judgmental mind is not drawing on the Buddha, on the Buddha but the judgmental mind is actually drawing on Mara. It is drawing on aversion and ill will and fear. And rarely is the inner critic the source of wise action or thought or speech. And the inner critic or the judgmental mind actually never leads to the end of suffering. In fact, it is suffering. It is suffering. And it compounds suffering. And rarely does the inner critic ever lead us to see the Buddha in ourselves. Instead, what the inner critic does is it closes the door on everything that is true and free and worthy and lovely within us. And the ethical guidelines and loving kindness and compassion are in truth suffocated by the belief in the inner critic because it harms. Actually, the inner critic actually is not aligned with the precepts, especially the first great precept of non-harming. Because it is harmful, harmful to ourselves, harmful to others. So I hope this distinction is clear between discriminating wisdom and the inner critic. Discriminating wisdom is entirely necessary and useful. The judgmental mind is entirely optional, and quite frankly, it's pretty much useless. Aroshi Kennett, who is a wonderful woman Zen teacher, she once said that the training of liberation begins with compassion for the self. Now notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say compassion for myself. She says compassion for the self. That to cultivate the non-judgmental mind is the key to opening the heart to the generosity of compassion. So, how do we do this? What does it, the non-judgmental mind and heart, look like? Because I'm sure most of us, most of you would like one. What does it mean to be free of the inner critic, to be non-judgmental, to put down this, to put to rest, this sniping inner voice. Now, I would encourage you actually to take that as a koan, as a question, into your practice. What does a non-judgmental mind look like? You know, just to sit with it as a question, to let it rest in your heart. But to really understand that, I think we need to turn our attention to the judgmental mind itself, to embrace the painfulness of it with the same mindfulness and the same care as we would embrace a pain in our body. The Dalai Lama once said, if you want to really understand what compassion is, look into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick, or her alien child. I think we need to learn to cradle the inner critic in exactly the same way 
because this is the tormented and the lost and the confused mind and heart. Compassion surely is to listen to the cries of the world, and we are part of that world. This compassion is the essence of mindfulness. It allows us to see and to understand and to find the freedom within everything that seems intractable and impossible. You see how much mindfulness really is a present moment experience and concerned with embracing and understanding the entirety, the wholeness of each moment with warmth, with tenderness, with interest. And in the light of that engaged attention, perhaps we discover that it's truly impossible to hate or to fear anything that we understand including the judgmental mind. Perhaps we might begin to see that the greatest barrier to compassion and freedom is really not just the pain or the suffering or the adversity that we meet in our lives, but the greatest obstacle and the greatest pain is the ongoing tendency to judge, to criticize, to inflict tremendous harm upon ourselves. Because to harden our heart to ourselves is to armor our hearts, really, to the possibilities of love and wholeness and freedom. It's really to close the door to our own Buddha nature. So we are asked to look our own inner critic in the eye. To not be intimidated to open a dialogue with the inner critic, to open a dialogue with self-judgment, not just wanting it to go away, but to really understand what it is that this judgmental heart is really teaching us. You know, and I could almost suggest that the whole of the path and all of the wisdom and all of the compassion that we seek for can be found within the judgmental mind. What would it be like for us to get up in the morning, to sit and the walk, and to walk and to sense that every single thing that we're going to be asked to understand is going to be found in this judgmental heart? Now, none of us, although it may seem like it, were born with a judgmental mind. It's a learned and a very well-practiced way of seeing and relating. And because it is learned, it can be unlearned. And it's not just about feeling better about ourselves, although, of course, everybody would like to feel better about themselves. It's about seeing that, that the judgmental mind is actually not a clear or a truthful mind. Because the judgment of mind can never ever see the entirety or the whole of anything. It's not a mindful mind. Because the judgment of mind is prone simply to see, to seize upon particulars and to mistake them for being the whole truth. 
Now, just because a judgmental mind is not listed in the list of the hindrances, is not listed as one of the great obstacles to freedom, it doesn't mean that it wasn't around 2,500 years ago. I'm going to read you something which is really horrible. <laughs> so I'd like you to be suitably shocked and, uh, and all that, but do remember, you know, I, it's not the whole story, okay? So this is a story about Moglana, who was apparently one of the most revered and respected um, disciples of the Buddha. And it's a story about a time when a woman approached him, apparently, I have to tell you, shamefully, many Buddhist stories are kind of like this. But this woman approached him with the intention of seducing him. And his response was... (laughs) Don't be shocked yet. You'd be shocked... be shocked at the response. Be shocked at the right moment. So his response was, get this, you bag of dung tied up with skin, you demoness with lumps on your breast, the nine streams in your body flow all the time, are vile smelling and full of dung. A monk desiring purity avoids your body as one avoids dung. Well, apart from the fact that he's got a preoccupation with dung. I mean... This actually sounds pretty judgmental to me. <laughs> so a little later along, a little later on comes along the wise nun. Okay. And she says, "Meditate on the unconditioned. Get rid of the tendency to judge yourself or others above, below or equal." By penetrating deeply into judgment, you will find peace. Now, I'd like to look at self-judgment in a particular way, as a kind of compound that we can unpack and understand. Now, the tendency to judge self-judgment is not one hindrance, as far as I can see, but it's a compound of hindrances. It's a multi-pack of hindrances. (laughs) If you really look at just one moment when the judgmental mind is really operating, what you can kind of sense is the wind of all the hindrance factors flowing through it. There's craving that takes the form of all the expectations, the shoulds, the ideas that we hold on to about ourselves. Now, there isn't actually the possibility of any judgment without there being some expectation that is disappointed. That's very important to understand. Without some should or ideal being disappointed or let down, what is there to judge? Judgment exists in relationship to something. So there's craving, this craving that takes the form of all those expectations of shoulds. We can see restlessness and anxiety in judgment. Huh? How, how, I, how I should be, how do I meet up to those demands, the generation of, generating of endless thought and emotion about how to be this person I'm supposed to be. We can see... Um, and and then, then along with that, the agitation, the anxiety that comes with the fear of failure. 
We can see in judgment, certainly we see the hindrances of aversion and ill will. Judgment, you know, it's kind of like an equal opportunity employer of the hindrances. You know, we see the aversion and the ill will that is directed towards our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our meditation, the pushing away of what is with blame, with shame, with belittlement. Within the judgmental mind, we certainly see the hindrance of doubt making a very powerful appearance, self-doubt, doubt in our worthiness, our lovability, our capacity to be free or hold, doubt in all that, anything that is good or beautiful, our capacity to change. You know, perhaps the only hindrance that really doesn't seem like an obvious feature in the judgmental mind is is, is sloth and torpor. But I think even this hindrance makes a disguised appearance in the judgmental mind in the form of despair, resignation, numbness, powerlessness. And of course, what is holding all these hindrance factors together? What is stopping them from being just winds that flow through the mind. But what is holding all of these hindrance factors together is the inner tyrant, the view of self. So look at this combination of the hindrance factors and the view of self. And what you have born of that is what we call the inner judge and the inner critic. The view of self, the belief in who we are and who we are not. And that belief is continuing to fuel and to fire the hindrances. So in a way, this is the task of our understanding, to understand this compound and to to loosen its whole and really actually to rediscover all that is beautiful and true and possible in ourselves to release and to let go all that is fabricated because judgments are surely a fabrication. They are a fabrication of misunderstanding and delusion and confusion. Thomas Merton once said that the essence of the spiritual path is a search for truth that springs from love. And that that search begins really with questioning the fiction, the ideology of brokenness and incompleteness, which is actually all the judgmental mind ever speaks of. Never speaks of that which is lovely. You know, in the Sufi tradition it's said that if we want to discover what is true, we should let our thoughts pass through three gates. At the first gate, we should ask of our thought, is it true? And if it is, we should let that thought pass through that gate. At the second gate, we should ask of that thought, is it helpful and is it necessary? And if it's true, we should embrace it. And at the third gate, we should ask of that thought, is it rooted in love and kindness? And this last question is perhaps the most important of all. And my sense is 
that judgmental thinking fails at all three gates. It's not true, it's not helpful, and it's not rooted in love and in kindness. So to look at what keeps them going. Now, the hindrances, as I've mentioned, certainly play a big part in the continuity of self-judgment, the thoughts that are rooted in ill will and aversion. For example, you know, just, just take an example. Like, suppose you fall asleep in the hall, you know, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you fall off your cushion or you snore or something. Now, do you meet that with compassion and generosity? Like, no big deal, no event, you know. You just pick yourself up and get on with it. Or, in that moment, would a familiar cycle of suffering begin? You know, first the shame and the blame. I'm useless, I'm terrible, I'm hopeless, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy, I'm a ter- miserable failure of a meditator, and now everybody knows it. <laughs> the secret's out. <laughs> we, notice we have an incredibly rich vocabulary of ill will. And then, you know, you pick yourself up, you look around you, and of course everybody else sits like a Buddha. They're better than me, better yogi, they're getting somewhere, they've got the right karma, they've got the right paramis. Now the other thing that judgment needs is inevitably it needs something to compare yourself with. You're either comparing yourself to all the Buddhas around you, or you're comparing yourself with your own self-imposed ideology of should the mythological ideas of perfection. Now, notice that this can set off craving and striving. I just have to try harder, you know. I'm going to be more perfect. It can set off agitation, you know. How do I become more perfect? Maybe I sort of copy somebody else, you know. Or we create more more, uh, images and shoulds, more craving. That sets off dullness and doubt. And notice how the hindrances of dullness and doubt are so closely related, you know. I failed at my expectations, my ideology of the perfect meditator, so I should just go home. Or we start telling ourselves the familiar story of impossibility. I've never been able to, I'll never be able to do this. Failed at everything in my life. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be worthy enough. And of course, the interview groups are coming up. Now, I have never, ever seen a better setup for the judgmental mind than interview groups. Huh? Have you noticed? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely horrible if the first person to speak sets the bar so high that, you know, everybody that comes afterwards is just going to be feeling miserable inside, you know. But look what it's like when you come to an interview group. I mean, do you listen? Do you feel tremendous celebration in somebody who's doing well? Or is it they're doing better than me? Do we feel tremendous empathy for someone who's not doing so well? Or do we say, I'm so glad that's not me? (laughs) (laughs) This is the tangled knot of suffering the hindrances, the self-view, and one other thing, the habit. Now, what has actually happened? We fell asleep. 
You know, I remember going to a, uh, the opening of the new temple at the monastery in England, you know, and they had all these super ajans, you know, from Thailand there, all lined up, you know, in orange robes on the stage. You know, and a lot of them were quite elderly, really, you know. And, and there was all that, these su- super-duper monks, you know. <laughs> They're all nodding away in unison, you know. Did they have a problem with it? Absolutely not at all. Not at all. You know, they're sitting there nodding off quite happily. It was just sort of the end of the story. You know, they're tired, so they're not off. You know, big deal. Very simple. I mean, the reality is in this imperfect world, we all have difficulties one way or another. Yet the moment that we get lost in the endless symphony of judgment, the moment we become aversive or despairing with ourselves, we're actually taking refuge in a deluded view of who we are. We're taking refuge in a deluded belief of who we are rather than taking refuge in the Buddha within ourselves. We're taking refuge in a house that is too small for us. Now, the cycle of judgment, thoughts, hindrances, and self-view goes round and round, and it becomes more and more familiar and harder and harder until it becomes a habit. As is so mentioned in this tradition, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. When our minds dwell upon self-directed ill will or outwardly directed ill will, it will become the shape of our mind until all that we can see is that which is broken and flawed and imperfect and impossible. You know, there's a saying in India that when the pickpocket meets the saint in the marketplace, all the pickpocket sees is the saint's pockets. When we look at ourselves or anyone or anything through, only through the eyes of blame and judgment, we see what is broken, but we also miss that which is beautiful and sincere and good and warm and kind and compassionate. Now, the solution to this is actually not to switch to affirmation. You know, because this can become another form of denial, and you never believe it anyway. I'm so wonderful, you know, I'm so perfect, you know, I'm so free, you know, we think, in my dreams, you know. (laughs) Suzuki Roshi once said that everything is perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. (laughs) Now, if we can let go, and I think this is really true, you know, I mean, in this path, we actually recognize that we're not perfect. I mean, we probably recognize there's a lot of room for improvement. I do. I don't see that as a problem. You know, I'm sure we all recognize that we could be kinder, more compassionate, calmer, more equanimous. No problem. And if we didn't recognize, we wouldn't be here, right? But we can recognize this, and instead of calling upon judgment, call upon discernment. The wise action, the wise thought, the wise... The, the wise choices, out of interest and loving kindness and a sense of possibility rather than out of blame. 
Because with judgment, we just follow these same old loops of blame and should, fear and dread. But I think it's so important to actually be willing to be mindful of the judgmental mind. Be willing to be mindful of the inner critic. Because every time it's operating, it's really a clue. And it's really pointing us to look more deeply into this more secret inner world, this more hidden inner world of uh, self-view and and belief and ideology about who we are. Now, as I mentioned, when when Kenneth Roshi said this path of compassion begins, path of liberation begins with having compassion for the self, it's not myself, but this sense of self best thing to do with this sense of self is not take it too personally. Much less of a problem. And what we really see is that this, this tendency towards self-judgment grows and thrives really in a culture of myself. In a culture of individuality, which quite frankly is a bit of a virus in our world. You know, and part of this this whole thing of self-judgment is is kind of cultural. I mean, years ago, the Dalai Lama expresses absolute astonishment to hear of the burden of self-judgment that Westerners carried. You know, the feelings of being unworthy and not good enough and the need to be perfect. You know, it's it's not necessarily everywhere. And, you know, it's perhaps something of a cultural error, we might say. It's a cultural error that somehow we've learned to collectively subscribe to. And you can see how much the emphasis upon individualism and individuality in our culture really feeds into it. You know, I mean, from the time, you know, you're a child, you know, being encouraged to succeed and win and, you know, you have to earn popularity and you have to win love and you have to be, you know, worthy of of praise. You have to be perfect to evaluate, to compare yourself and, of course, to fail are some of the really predominant themes in a culture of myself and individuality. I always decide to mention there is really no such thing as a perfect self, as I'd like to put that on the table. It is an oxymoron. It's not possible. It's not absolutely not possible. I mean, there isn't such a thing. It can't be found. No one has a perfect self. No one in the entire universe. The nature of self is that it is imperfect. I will never have one. I know that. I'm so happy. (laughs) So happy I will never have a perfect self. There is a different culture that is possible. Not about having a perfect self, but about nurturing all that is loving and healing and wise to learn, actually, to be a Buddha. Now, this teaching actually encourages us to look at the whole idea of myself as a fabrication born of confusion. Now, myself is born moment to moment of anything that is clung to or identified with in the moment. And apart from the clinging or identifying with a thought, with a, an idea, an image, uh, with something that's happening in the body, apart from clinging and identifying, 
There is no myself to compete with, to be compared with, to struggle with. Guess who? Yourself. Or the self that I expect myself to be. Now, myself is actually a very fragile creature. It's a very fragile creature because, like all things that are born and fabricated, it, it can never stay the same. You know, it's dependent on conditions. It's always being changed by conditions. Myself. I mean, you, none of you have here have had a constant myself through one single day of this retreat. And my, not even one hour. Not even five minutes. You know, have you ever noticed that the moment you get somewhere in practice, you know, like the moment you get a good self, you know, a good meditator, like something's going to come along just a moment later and just knock that good self right off the shelf. You know, and you're going to have another self. I mean, it's happening all the time in our life, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, do we see that? We just don't have any constancy within this fragile creature because it's fabricated. It's born of conditions. Now, if you'll notice that the story of, the, of judgment really needs a storyteller. And that's myself, in a way. Who is it that is the storyteller? Who is telling the story of imperfection? Who is telling the story of brokenness? If you look at that really closely, I think what you see is that the story and the storyteller are co-joined. They arise together. In truth, the story is telling us. Story is actually telling us who we are. But they arise together and they pass together. And you see that the storyteller, the myself, kind of serves to give credibility and solidity to the story. And the story that is told reinforces the credibility and the solidity of the storyteller. It's a kind of toxic marriage, a dance that is almost so uh, difficult, uh, yet so important to see. And I think when you can see that sense of the co-joining of the storyteller and the story, it's this kind of a deep relief in that. That maybe there really truly is another way to be. Maybe there's another way of being that doesn't actually bring so much suffering. Now, even wanting the judgmental mind to go away can be another manifestation of ill will. You know, we judge the judgments, don't we? Yeah, I shouldn't be so judgmental. <laughs> now, of course, part of being human is that we surely don't like the pain and the sorrow that comes with judgment. But we need to be aware of not giving birth to a slightly more enlightened storyteller, an inner judge. Now the one who has the responsibility of letting go of judgment. I don't think anybody woke up this morning and decided to be to be judgmental. I don't think anybody comes into a sitting or a walking deciding it's a good time to be very grasping and clinging. We have to see that it's actually not our responsibility to let go of the judge. It's not our responsibility to let go of the self. 
just as it wasn't our decision to take hold of the judge. This doesn't mean it being irresponsible. It means actually being truly responsible. Because our responsibility is really to understand the construction of self-view, hindrance, and habit, and how that construction operates together and feeds together. If we have a responsibility, it is to nurture the clarity and the understanding that can truly see through this fabrication and to see the emptiness and to see how these three of hindrance, habit, and self-view go round and gather around a thought, hmm? just a thought, and charge that thought with authority that says, I am. That's all it does. Hindrance, self-view, and habit has gathered around a thought and charged that thought with authority. Even the demand to let go of judgment can be translated into one more expectation a sign of spiritual success or failure, and then, of course, more judgment. It's not cultivating compassion for myself, but cultivating compassion for the sorrow and the pain and the confusion that is created by this fabrication we call myself. Really, selfing and grasping are just two words for the same phenomena. Selfing and grasping are the same thing. They're not different. It's not I grasp. Selfing is grasping. Grasping is selfing. It's not like there's some, you know, miserable little grasper living inside my heart who just goes out and grasps and clings. Selfing and grasping are the two words for the same phenomenon. Letting go, learning to be non-identified, to loosen grasping is actually non-selfing different words for the same phenomena. Now, one of these phenomena, one of these events causes suffering and asks for understanding and compassion, and the other ends suffering and is the embodiment of compassion and understanding. As I mentioned, the whole of the pathway, this whole teaching, can be seen within the judgmental mind. The judgment is a thought laden with aversion, a thought, the aversion holding all the historical baggage, all the moments of hatred and rejection and fear and blame we've encountered in our lives. But because we've had that thought 10,000 times, it doesn't make it true. It only shows us what we are prone to take hold of and believe in. Now, if we take away the history from the judgmental thought, if we take away the self-view, take away the hindrance and the grasping, then that thought, like all other thoughts and like all other phenomena, would just arise and pass. The birth and the death of the storyteller, too. Just a thought. Holding no intrinsic power to dictate our heart or freedom. This practice of mindfulness and insight we apply to the body and all that our body can experience. We apply to our mind and hearts and all our minds and hearts can experience. But this practice of mindfulness and insight we also apply to the body of judgment. You know, we train ourselves in many things, in ethics and loving kindness and non-harming as an antidote 
to aversion and ill will as an antidote in truth to the habit of self-judgment. It can seem so effortful at times, but with practice it becomes more effortless. We also train ourselves in understanding self-view and grasping, (coughs) understanding that self-view is not the truth of the moment, but it is what has been grasped hold of the moment. And the light of awareness, it begins to soften. If we really want to be liberated from the judgmental mind, we have to understand the self-view underneath it. You know, once someone recently, somebody told me on retreat that, you know, they were having a really restless day and they were doing things like really restless minds do and they were reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. (laughs) And the first instruction they read said, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. So to really find that liberation from the judgmental mind, we aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. We really, really question the ideology of myself. The self-view that we hold to really, really question, is it true? Is it true? To see that self-view only thrives in the confusion of non-investigation. This is the alchemy of mindfulness to bring a sense of possibility to all those moments and areas of ourselves that seem so impossible. And we are asked to imagine a life that is free of judgment, a life that is free of blame and shame, a life of possibility in truth to really imagine a life really rooted in actually the Buddha, the truthfulness of who, of what is actually here and present, of what is most honest, most beautiful, most truthful within ourselves. Just a moment, quietly, together. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.